0: It's time for your local weekly analysis. Slow County Public Policy and the Law with your host, Stu Jenkins. The union forever.
1: Hurrah, boys, hurrah. Down with the traitor!
0: Welcome to Slow County Public Policy and the Law, every Saturday on KNews 98.5. We open a window into local San Luis County and state public policy, policymakers, and the law affecting you. I'm your host, Stu Jenkins. I've practiced election law in San Luis Obispo County since 1978, appearing in court for the Democratic Party and Republican officeholders. It has been my privilege to serve as Superior Court Special Master. Between elections, I help folks with estate planning and real estate law. Today, I am so pleased to be able to speak during this hour with SLO County District Attorney Dan Dow about local initiatives he has taken and about things the state of California can do to improve public safety here and around California. In our other hour, we are talking with Rick Hessen, an internationally recognized expert in election law. Legislation and Statutory Interpretation. Rick Hassan will let us know about his victory to overturn part of Proposition 22 that would have prevented the legislature from making big companies provide workers with the right to organize labor unions if they were gig workers and much more. But let me introduce someone most of you already know, District Attorney Dan Dow. District Attorney Dan Dow was admitted to the California Bar Association in November of 2005. After graduating from Santa Clara University School of Law, he speaks Korean and has served as a reservist for many years. Are you still serving Dan? I am. Yes, just I'll hit my 30th year in June. Uh, Dan was elected SLO County District Attorney, June 3rd, 2014, a post he has been reelected to twice and he has presided over many significant cases i think the most significant recent case was uh, the prosecution of paul flores uh, to obtain justice decades after Kristen smart was murdered and he has instituted frankly some of the most far-sighted programs in the state Um, dan welcome to the program
1: thank you Stu. it's great to be with you appreciate the invitation
0: i have to ask you your rank in the reserves
1: i'm a lieutenant colonel Promoted okay. to lieutenant colonel in 2018.
0: Uh, did the judges call you Colonel?
1: They call me Judge. judge. Wh- if I'm when I'm when I'm serving as Judge, uh, <laughs> do the judges here in the county call
0: me that? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, um, so how long have you lived in San Luis Obispo County?
1: We, my wife and I, uh, moved here permanently in 2005. I'm sorry, 2007. I was here in 2004 as a law clerk. So um, okay. sometimes I like to consider that my my first uh, time living here, but that was a brief amount of time. Um, as I was finishing up law school.
0: And who did you clerk for?
1: I clerked for the district attorney's office under uh, Jerry Shea, who was the DA. He uh, graciously let me come in after I had just gotten back from a a deployment um, overseas to Kosovo, and I uh, missed all the other uh, summer internship application period because I was gone. And uh, he was very gracious to allow me to come here and do an internship, and things
0: things worked out well. We've been learning how to do this show, so I'm pulling out the microphone to make sure. While I'm talking to you, that we have decent volume, so, folks. You're also getting a lesson in how talk shows work. <laughs> um, I uh, I didn't want to go too far into the show without uh, having you talk about a little bit about the Paul Flores case. That that had been languishing for decades. That's right. Because yeah. the the investigations had never uh, successfully come up with enough evidence to have Mr. Flores arrested. Um, and uh, I want to let you know my my spouse tells me every time we say your name how much she appreciates you getting that uh, predator off the streets of California. Um, what was it that, that finally broke open the case for you? Well, um, it's a great
1: question. As you um, have alluded to, for many, many years there was work done, but not enough evidence had come forward. And it, the reason it's so critical is that if you go forward in a case and you don't have enough evidence to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt to our very high ethical burden that we have um, and somebody is acquitted you can never retry them due to the double jeopardy clause and so um, it's very important that we get it right when we file a case and that this case being as high profile as it was meant that uh, clearly the stakes were very high if we got it wrong and so I wanted to make sure from the moment I was elected that um, I got briefed on the case so I was briefed on it back in uh, 2015. Um, and I began to uh, you know, be uh, comfortable with the history of what had been done, what the state of the case was, enough to know that we needed more. And, and it had never been referred to us but, uh, at that point, but um, I was able to be fully briefed on the status of the investigation. And I affirmed early on with the sheriff that we were committed to doing everything we could to helping them and assisting with our Bureau of Investigation. So wh- that's just to give you the fact that we began, at, at, when I first was elected, um, and it had a lot of ups and downs, roller coaster ride since 2015 until we were finally able to go forward. But some of the things, without really boiling it down to an exact amount of things, some of the things that were really critical were obviously finding the grape site underneath the deck of Ruben Flores' home, finding the blood, human blood there, finding this, the size of that void that had been dug up was
0: just about exactly the size that you'd expect a grave for someone uh, the size of Kristen Smart to be. How was it that you got leads that uh, allowed you to go get a warrant to do that?
1: Well, you know, as you know, you need probable cause uh, in order to get a judge to sign off on a warrant. And so there were numbers of things that had been done. And without really getting into that, because I want to be careful, there's the defendant has now filed a notice of appeal, and so this case will, will go up. Some things you can't up.
0: discuss, I imagine. Some
1: things we can't. All I can tell you is that, that there, there was information gathered that led law enforcement to conclude that there would be evidence inside the home so the first search that has been reported about was a re- search inside the home um, after that search was performed and, and evidence was taken from Reuben's home um, a, uh, a neighbor ended up reporting that shortly after that search there had been um, some loud voices and some angry what was described as angry loud voices of um, Reuben and Mrs. Flores uh, heard outside of the home late at night when it was dark and that a trailer had been backed up to the backyard where they had to take down a side fence to get there um, and that it was believed that something was going on perhaps underneath the house. And so um, that was a big part of what led to the search warrant being granted to doing ground penetrating radar um, in the backyard um, and underneath uh, the house. And so um, we're just so grateful that uh, that was able to be done because it led us to where we had now physical evidence of a burial site uh, of where Kristen Smart was buried. And I believe the jury's finding, the jury's finding guilt uh, based on the evidence that we presented shows that the jury also concluded
0: that was where she was buried. I, I think that's absolutely right. For our listeners, you're listening to District Attorney Dan Dow. And Dan, um, you know, search getting a search warrant on those kinds of facts is not necessarily a... a uh, Sure thing. You, you have to convince a Superior Court judge that there's enough factual basis there to have officers come and look through somebody's home and look under their home. Um, were there any, uh, was the process of getting that search warrant um, straightforward or was it difficult?
1: Well, you know, the, the sheriff's office, as the lead investigating agency, um, prepared through their detectives um, the search mm-hmm. warrant affidavits and declarations. And and uh, I had embedded um, a prosecutor and investigator by that time to um, assist um, and to ensure that we were ready. But, uh, you know, we don't direct the investigating agency. They they sought the
0: warrant based on their independent decision that, that they had enough to do that. Does your um, office help them go through the affidavit to, to make sure that it uh, contains as much uh, as possible?
1: You know, that's an area that um, is a little bit tricky because, you know, we we will review them to ensure that um, not in every case. In fact, most search warrants now are brought to the sheriffs or brought to a judge without the DA looking at them. Okay. In in cases of major significance and where the stakes are really high if we are in a joint role at that point where we're working closely with the investigating agency um, you know it would be common for us to review the warrant just to make sure that we feel like um, it's um, it's presented in a way that um, is accurate to the best of our ability best of the, the mm-hmm. affiance ability um, and that it's presented in a way that we think Uh, would be appropriate so without getting into the specifics of this specific warrant and what was done um, it would be common for us to review warrants before they're presented but it's not a requirement in our county it used to be a judicial requirement that the da reviewed every search warrant and
0: uh, in the recent uh, last few years they've withdrawn that requirement from our office okay but but uh, it's safe to say that if it wouldn't pass your muster um, it's unlikely to pass the judge's muster
1: correct and i think that would be the argument for why the bench did require our office to look at them before because it it helped ensure that um it already had another set of eyes look at that and when i had done that in the past i you know i think the officers appreciate as well getting a a legal mind review on it and um, so uh, but i I believe that our, our our community law enforcement agencies due to the fact that we're not reviewing them anymore it's actually causing a better initial product because they're getting direct feedback from judges if they Uh, if their warrants aren't sufficient, and uh, then they go back and and work on them, and and I think it helps them
0: provide a better product to the court. As Dan knows, I've been practicing in San Luis County since 1978, and judges training lawyers was always a significant uh, feature in our county. The judges who trained lawyers tended to get better lawyers in their courtrooms, and uh, obviously if the judges are giving feedback to officers, they're going to get much better um, affidavits to get search warrants. That's right.
1: Well, you know, you're probably aware then of one of the judicial canons that is judges, judicial officers are responsible for the conduct of the lawyers in their courtroom. Did you know that? That's right. And so, therefore, if they're doing, like you said, um, that kind of mentoring and and, uh, holding uh, the bar to that standard that we all would expect, then I think the
0: performance of all of the attorneys rises. I I agree. Some of us knew that before there were canons. (laughs) Those are like guidance, folks. Um, uh, I actually had invited you in here, uh, gosh, a couple of months ago because you had, I thought, a very uh, imaginative and far-sighted program whereby you were trying to help folks, not folks like Mr. Flores, obviously, uh, who had been convicted of crimes but who had served their terms and had completed their probations uh, or paroles, I suppose. Uh, But they couldn't find a job because every time they went to look for a job, uh, up popped their record. Right. And uh, I saw that you had been cooperating and had essentially pulled together a number of the defense counsel to have a program that would help rehabilitate folks. Can you tell us about that?
1: Absolutely. And I'm I'm really proud of um, the success of our very first what we call a clean slate clinic. Um, So it all began several years ago when I was working with Sister Teresa and restorative partners. And um, I'm a big believer that if, you know, that everyone is, um, none of us are uh, without our maybe poor decisions that we've made in the past. And we all have to learn from those and and put them behind us and we can all become
0: better people. In the good book, it says, uh, let he who, uh, (laughs) well, anyway. That's right. Throwing stones, eh, folks.
1: Yes. (laughs) He who is without sin uh, cast the first stone. That's right. So. Um, We all uh, can become better, and I think um, one of the important things in our justice system is the accountability factor. When somebody commits an offense, um, the justice system is there to hold them accountable, um, put on you know some discipline, and say you know don't do that again. And um, if we look at them as now forever criminal, particularly the ones with you know what most of us across the political spectrum would consider lower level offenses, we really want them to learn from that and return to being a productive citizen, not to be now labeled as a, you know, a misdemeanor a, or a felon for the rest of their life and never be able to move on. And so and you, you really
0: can't do that unless you can find a job.
1: That's right. And so um, we, I've long been a supporter of restorative partners and uh, the work that she's been doing to transform people's lives so that they're now productive citizens and, and have worked on their addiction and they're now returned to the community. And so um, the barrier that Sister T kept telling me was, well, people have, they still have their record. How do we get their record expunged? And um, and so California, as you know, has a couple of sections and has for many years a a process and a procedure for people with misdemeanors and and certain felonies. Uh, On the felonies, if they qualify to have it reduced to a misdemeanor, and then for the misdemeanor once it becomes one or the one that was originally a misdemeanor, they can be dismissed if you've completed all of your probationary requirements, Uh, you know, you've paid your fines, you've done all your things, and you haven't picked up a new offense within that period, you've successfully completed it. Um, then you get your case dismissed. It's not dismissed for all purposes. So for those like me that are that are law and order uh, individuals that still care about um, future, right? Future um, if you pick consequences. If the police
0: pick somebody up, you can still see these
1: prior convictions. They, they can still be seen. And in the case mm-hmm. of like a DUI, um, we can still charge that prior offense as a prior. Uh, for the purpose of enhancing the sentence for the second one. The, the benefit to the individual, though, on this dismissal is they don't have to report the conviction on a job application for a uh, kind of a, a typical job. They still would need to report it if they require state licensure or if they're trying to become a law enforcement officer.
0: So if you had prior DUIs but you were applying to be a school bus bus driver, it, it would, would still show up
1: it would show up then because yeah. of the nature of the employment but if you're applying to you know manage a restaurant uh become the you know the shift manager for a restaurant or something like that where it's not applicable to that sort of uh, employment uh, it would you would not have to report it and it wouldn't come up in
0: your background check now where did you where did you come up with this idea of organizing essentially what were prior statutes And organizing a a procedure so that people could know about their right to go through that, uh, go to court and get the expungement and uh, get lawyers to be working on those expungements.
1: It was uh, probably about three years ago when Sister Teresa kept sending me individuals and saying, "Dan, we need your help on this one." And the reason they need the DA help is we don't we are not the ones that bring the application to the court. The defendant will they can do it pro per on their own behalf or they can do it through their lawyer but the da always has to be notified the code section says the da has to be notified and have an opportunity to object because we can look into the record and find out if they truly um, meet the requirements and then we can advise the court on whether or not we think that the person is um, is appropriate to get this relief and so because we're a required party of it uh, sister t would say hey can you look into this and can you help this person i said absolutely we'll we will look into it and find out if they're eligible and so um, and then I would even get requests from people in the community when I would talk to people, and they'd say, well, hey, my, I committed this 15 years ago. I've never done anything else, and I, it's bugging me that it's still on my, on my record. How do I get it cleaned up? And so i just educate them, tell them about the process, and they would fill out the paperwork, and they'd submit it, and I'd, I'd be able to sign off for the DA's office so it would go to court and would be approved. Um, and so I began doing that and realized we really have a lot of people in the community that are, uh, have already earned this benefit but they either don't know about it or it's a cumbersome process to do it so i worked with steve rice
0: early on and we we and did steve th- rice is uh, one of the public defenders isn't that's he? right
1: yes uh, he is the uh, the current contract uh, uh manager of mm-hmm. slow public defenders um brian buckley is his assistant um assistant public defender and um so we we worked on several one-off cases and said you know we really need to put a, a clinic together with the law library and we were trying to get this thing off the ground for a while. And then um, it was almost like, uh, you know, it was very serendipitous. Uh, we got contacted by um, a member of the bar here locally, the California Rural Legal Assistance, Joe Doherty. Sure. Um, and his entity, California Rural Legal, had just obtained a grant to expand this kind of service in our community. And so now we had a... Coordinator, if you will, a lead agency that was separate from both the, the public defender and our office to do the organization around it. So the parties were committed to doing it, saying we need to get this thing going, and it was just going to be the public defender in our office and the law library, but it was challenging. You know, we've, we've still got caseloads to manage and all these other things. Sure. So Joe Doherty came in and really saved the day and said, let me uh, take the lead on this and get your help. And from what he's told us, the feedback that he's had from other counties in the state of California is they've never, ever seen the kind of collaboration and success
0: that our clinic has already seen. Well, that's wonderful. And I, uh, are you doing any, anything to spread this around California?
1: I'm I'm letting all the other DAs um, in my association know that we're doing it, um, and I've had good feedback from them as well. I don't mm-hmm. know, again, the resources that other offices and other counties have in terms of how quickly – they might do something similarly. Now, I don't want to give the impression that it's not being done with routine anyway. I mean, we were getting these, uh, you know, every month we may get a few of these requests. Um, The problem with it is they were taking months and months, sometimes a year for the court to approve them. And so um, we streamlined the process and sped it up so that uh, it would be really a
0: better service for the community. Well, that's wonderful. And uh, for for our listeners, we're talking with District Attorney Dan Dow and Uh, He was talking about the caseloads that his office and the public defender's office carries. uh, Just to give you a little history, folks, I was a public defender in the municipal court in the city of Grover City years ago. And uh, I finally decided I wanted to go out on my own when I realized I had 110 cases under my arm every day when I'd walk in. And uh, I, I wanted to give a little bit more attention to my clients than that. Um, Absolutely. So these are, these are very often crushing caseloads that uh, both the district attorney's officers and uh, the public defender's officers are handling. Um, I wanted to kind of segue to a couple of your other programs because uh, we're, you've, well, there's a, there was an initiative a while back that was adopted to roll back um, punishments and roll back uh, things that were felonies to misdemeanors uh, in, in order to, uh, well, get, over, get through the overcrowding that was happening in our prisons, among other things. Uh, one of the things I understand that uh, that initiative may have done intentionally or inadvertently was to make it a misdemeanor instead of a felony to uh, force sexual relations on an intoxicated person who was passed out. Is that
1: uh, thankfully that's not correct oh good but, uh this no. is a rumor
0: that's been running around the county <laughs>
1: not a misdemeanor no um, so there's two two initiatives that passed in 2014 it was prop 47 prop 47 mm-hmm. is the one you're referring to that that uh, when the voters passed it immediately caused uh, many cases that used to be felonies to now be misdemeanors. That was more prevalent with uh, commercial burglary, people going into a store, entering with the intent to commit theft or a felony. That could be a felony or a misdemeanor prior to 47. Afterwards, that's only a petty uh, shoplifting and it can't ever be charged as a felony unless you steal more than 950. And a lot of other uh, drug possession, uh, charges that used to be either a felony or a misdemeanor were now straight misdemeanors. That, what you're talking about was later in 2016 when Prop 57 passed. Ah. So Prop 57 said um, we're only we're gonna we have too many people in prison still after what we did with Prop 47, and we have some nonviolent people in prison. We want them to be let out of prison early. Well, most people didn't connect what had happened in 47, AB 109, quite frankly, before that with realignment and then Prop 47. They assumed that these nonviolent offenders were drug users and thieves, You know, the ones committing the commercial burglaries and, and using methamphetamine, for instance. Right, right. Those people were not in prison after after realignment in 2011 because that's when the legislature said nobody in prison unless you're there for a violent, serious, or a sex offense. So there were three categories left in prison after 2011. But the voters didn't understand that. So when they heard that nonviolent offenders would be released from early they thought hey that's a good idea we don't want nonviolent people being put in there what the proposition didn't tell you was that crimes like rape of an intoxicated person is not on the violent offenders list it's not considered a violent crime under california law and so it didn't change the status of rape of an intoxicated person it now amplified the effect of that that it wasn't the band we're going to need to
0: come back to this because okay. we've got a Hard break coming up. All right. Got to make some money. Well, absolutely. And uh, so, folks, stick around. Stay tuned. We're going to be talking some more with District Attorney Dan Dow.